0: Sometimes in a TV show or when reading a book, the tension in the midst of moments isn't explicitly spelled out for us. We as observers are expected to be able to notice the subtle looks and micro-expressions of the characters. We're supposed to remember their motivations, their previous moments of perhaps uncomfortable awkwardness, and keep track of the characters that have slighted them in the past. That moments when an adversarial character walks into the room or maybe an important letter falls out of a bundle to the ground or a love interest misinterprets the phrasing of a sentence and is offended, we are supposed to just know why there is tension, why there is drama. And perhaps, as often happens to us, if you're only passively paying attention due to other distractions that you might be participating in, you might even lean over to ask your friend or your spouse, what's happening in this scene? Who who is that? Why did the music change? What does this mean? And in today's passages, we're going to have this building tension in the life of David. The way he feels isn't going to be explicitly told to us. We're supposed to just know. We'll pick up in 1 Samuel 28, verse 1, the first of this building tension. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. You're supposed to feel tension. Why? Because Israel is David's homeland. The only reason he's fled from Israel is because he's in exile due to Saul having hunted him down to kill him over and over and over again. And he's been hiding amongst the enemy army, the Philistines. He's been living there for some time now, months, over a year and now his loyalty is being tested in bible commentaries about david's thoughts in this moment henry uh, matthew henry he says david waited with a secret hope that the lord would help him out of this difficulty but he seems to have been influenced too much by the fear of man in consenting to attend achish and so that we we see there's this internal tension that commentators on this passage they feel is obvious. And I'm gonna to have to try to build that case for you because they don't give me much to work off of. They just, in what they write, it's it's kind of assumed. Now this is, this is the case I'm gonna build as far as what David's thoughts are in this moment, because he's going to say things that make you think, oh, he wants to. He wants to go to war with Achish against Israel. He wants to please this Philistine king. He is new loyalties now and he no longer cares for Israel. That's what the plain reading would suggest. But we must discern the motives in his heart. Previously, David had avoided attacking Israel and he was intentionally vague in his description of his raids that King Achish presumed had been against Israel. I want us to ask, why would David have gone through all this work of misinforming him? And the reason is because he doesn't want to attack Israel, but he wants King Achish to believe that he's willing to. Now think about David's perception of the people of Israel. This is what we've known so far from his own mouth when David was a young boy bringing food to the Israelite army that was encamped against the Philistines, and he overhears the taunts of a giant named Goliath. First Samuel 17, he said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God, right? David cared about Israel's integrity. He felt as though it was shameful that the army had not responded to Goliath, that they had brought reproach upon upon themselves and the entire nation. And David also felt that the Goliath's taunts were spoken against the armies. And if taunts were to be responded with an attack, how much more would actually raising a sword against them have been justified in justice being brought? David also considered that those armies belong to the living God. That in his mind, attacking those armies is an attack on God himself. And we've already seen how he's often stayed his own hand at attacking King Saul because Saul was the Lord's anointed. Many of these moments when Saul has been hunting David, Saul has 3,000 Israelite soldiers with him. And David never took his own crew to attack that army. In 1 Samuel 17, when David finally challenges Goliath, he says, You come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Right, And so in his mind, not only do these armies belong to God, but God in some way belongs to them. It's this mutual relationship. They are connected to one another in covenant And David was offended that this giant, this Philistine, had defied God's armies and God himself. When he later on in the future, okay, is king of Israel and is planning on getting the Ark of the Covenant back into the city, in first Chronicles thirteen two, David said to all the assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you and from the Lord, our God, let us send abroad to our brothers who remain in all the lands of Israel, as well as to the priests and Levites in the cities that have pasture lands, that they may be gathered to us that in David's mind, the people of Israel are brothers. This is family to him, and he should not raise his sword against his family. And as that Ark of the Covenant is being brought into the city, and David is dancing and rejoicing, and his wife Michal is embarrassed and ashamed by him, in verse 21, David says to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. David recognizes Israel as the people of the Lord. How could he, a man after God's own heart, attack God's own people? The only people on the earth at that time that were a light to the nations, the very people that God had chosen and made a covenant with was the nation of Israel. And now David finds himself across the valley on the other side, the wrong side, soon to go to war with them. Now, as far as David's thoughts about attacking Israel, consider this. David considered the failure of King Saul's bodyguard to protect him as being something that deserved death. In 1 Samuel 26, when David had snuck into the camp, he says to Abner, are you not a man? Who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your Lord. This thing that you have done is not good. And as the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear, etc., etc. is. And so if David thought that the bodyguard who failed to protect the king of Israel Right? He didn't attack the king. He failed to protect the king of Israel, was deserving of death. How much more would David consider it wrong to actually wield a blade against the people of God? Saul had sinned against David, and David thought what Abner did was despicable. The people of Israel had not sinned against David. He surely could not lift up his sword against his own people. And so what will David do? He's hiding out among the Philistines. He's gained the favor of King Achish. And now Achish has made it very plain. Understand, you will go to war with me against Israel. First Samuel 29 verse 2. David said to Akish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Akish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. David's entrapped. He's going to be forced to fight Israel. And when confronted, he chooses to respond nonchalantly. Right? He's, he says to the king, uh, you've heard about me in battle. You'll finally get to see my abilities. He knew he couldn't show any reluctance. Akish reads David's response as loyalty. He knew, just as we are supposed to know, that this could have been a breaking point for the two of them. He decides that if David can go, against war, go to war against Israel, then there is nothing that will ever separate the two of them. He could use David as a bodyguard, trusting that he would never betray him. He can have David's skill as a warrior near to him at all times without worrying about a sudden change in loyalty. And so as a result of David's response, he gets a promotion. He is drawn deeper into an ungodly world. At what point will he be exposed as not being like the rest of them? Will they find out he doesn't think like they do? Like Daniel in Babylon, will his faithfulness to God cause a divide between him and the king? Will prayer, diet, devotion to the Lord at some point be viewed as disloyalty? treason he will seek the prosperity of his city but when obeying god requires disobeying the king he already knows what his choice must be just like jesus praying in the garden gethsemane he makes up his mind in that moment not my will but yours be done that regardless of what he faces the next day if he is to be delivered by a legion of angels, then wonderful, but if the Father is pleased to have the Son go to the cross, then he will glorify the Father in his death. David in this moment must have the utmost confidence in his relationship with God. He must take great care in managing his own conscience. He needs to be careful not to cross the line. He needs to know now what hill he is willing to die on. Church, we will find ourselves in similar situations. We are in the world, but not of it. We are a light to this world, surrounded by darkness. People may enjoy our company at times, but in other moments they will be perplexed by our quaint beliefs. They may at times admire our integrity, and others other times consider our convictions to be offensive or through misunderstanding or reinterpretation. They may even call them hateful. But we cannot compromise our faith. We must live with others as much in peace, as much as it depends on us. We must love our neighbor, serve them, care for them. But we cannot let that supersede our love for God. There may be a moment in which we come to an impasse that our loyalty cannot be divided in which we will love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, since that is the greatest commandment. And we continue to aim to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, and just as Christ has loved us. But we will love our neighbors as God defines it and guides us to do so which won't always be in the same way that they desire love. If David's convictions were exposed in this moment, Akish might have said, why can't you just love and serve me the way that I want you to? Why can't you just go to war against Israel? And even if it was misunderstood by Akish, David would have to love and obey God more. And he loved Akish. It's interesting that for this whole season in which he's lived with Akish, David didn't bluntly lead with his convictions. He is willing to allow some amount of ambiguity for a season. He doesn't just blurt out, I am loyal to Israel, and when it comes down to it, I will fight you to the death before I fight them. No. He spends time with Achish. He lets his integrity be put on display. He allows a reputation, a friendship, a relationship to build with Achish, this Philistine king. The son of David, the son of God, the son of man, Jesus, he isn't afraid of offending others. Or or letting them know where he stands. But other times... When it isn't a critical issue, he defers. When Simon Peter is asked whether or not Jesus pays the temple tax, he's like, oh, of course. And when he comes into the house where Jesus is, Jesus speaks to him and says, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Notice what Jesus does. He speaks the truth and he says, however, not to give offense, give it to them. I'm going to avoid offending them over something that's not that big of a deal. Notice that Jesus doesn't consider money to be worth more than relationship. Jesus is willing to suffer financial loss for the sake of remaining friendly, but he is never willing to compromise truth for the sake of avoiding offense. What's interesting is, as we read this little exchange between David and Achish, it's after this that we catch this like kind of like meanwhile moment, uh, like what's going on with Saul, and it's not actually chronologically lined up. It takes place when Saul seeks after a medium to get wisdom from the now dead prophet Samuel. right, And he's told that, Tomorrow he's going to die in battle, but it's actually not the same battle that David's about to go into. And so what I want to point out is that, like, what is the writer of this passage doing? We see this point of conflict for David in which he has the opportunity to compromise or to stay true to his values and this building tension. And I imagine it's perhaps written this way to give us a contrast between the choices and compromises that Saul makes compared to David. Saul has disobeyed the Lord to the point of the Lord abandoning him. Saul has compromised his faith by participating in pagan practices of the surrounding nations. The same things that God warned would get those nations spewed out of the land and resulted in Israel doing the same. And now the question is, what is David going to do? Saul is a compromised king. If David is to be king, what will he be like? Will he compromise in similar ways? Will he take a path of convenience, of least resistance? What is David thinking? What is he praying in this moment? Like God, give me wisdom. Right? Perhaps something like, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Or like, Lord, I'm willing to go where you send me. I'm going to remain faithful to you. After we get the little story about Saul and his failures in seeking a necromancer, in 1 Samuel 29, it picks up again back with David Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. Now what's interesting is Aphek we've heard about before. In 1 Samuel 4, it says the word of the Lord came to all Israel. So this is like years before. And now Israel went to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. And that was a battle in which God allowed the Ark of the Covenant to be taken. This is the same battleground that they've been at before. A battleground in which God allowed his own people to lose. And the Israelites are in Jezreel. In Judges 6, we actually read that they've encamped here before. Now all the Midianites and Amalekites of the people of the East came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the Valley of Jezreel. Jezreel is on Israel's side of the Jordan River. It is in their land, right? That they are encamped in their territory. And the Philistines are at Aphek, a battleground that they know they've won at before. But what's interesting about Jezreel, it's not just in Israel territory, but let's check, check out first Samuel 25, 43. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel as a wife. And so to complicate matters more, one of David's wives is from Jezreel. So not only would he be fighting against his own people, but he would be fighting against some of his wife's own family. Samuel 29 verse two, as the Lord of the Philistines, as the Lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, wait a minute. What are these Hebrews doing here? Right. And imagine this, right? David is in the back of the group. He's thinking like, Hey, I'm, I'm in the back. Maybe, maybe I never make it to the front lines. Maybe I never have to raise my sword against an Israelite. Maybe this will be resolved long before I come to this point of conflict. But oh no, he's been spotted. These Philistine commanders recognize him and his band of of men. And the commanders bring up the very topic that David has been trying to hide. Is he going to be exposed? Will he have to fight these thousands right now? Will him and his men be killed? What does he do? Let's continue reading. And Achish, the king, remember, he said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. He says the phrase that David deserted to him. I imagine those words could have stung David. Did David desert his own people, the armies of the Lord? No, he fled from the maniacal and murderous Saul who had been hunting him. But that surely must be what some others thought about him. He's a deserter. He is misunderstood by the world and possibly even by the followers of God. But nonetheless, Achish argues David is loyal to me, and he has been for years. Verse four. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. Now things are getting tense for David. He's surrounded by thousands of Philistine soldiers, and the commanders of the Philistines said to him, "Send the man back, that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down to uh, with us to battle." lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck his thousands and David his ten thousands. Right, they remind Akish like, dude, there's a song about this guy, <laughs> about how he's killed 10,000s of our own people. Just because you think he's quit doing it for a couple years doesn't mean that he's done. Right, Think about, David, this argument is going on. Like, there's raised voices and armies and swords and spears present. Reminds me, you know, it probably looked something like this. Right, David among the Philistine army when they mentioned the song about how he's killed thousands of them. Ten thousands of them. And so verse six, then Achish called David and said to him, as the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me, it seems right. It seems right that you should march out with me in the campaign. for i have found nothing wrong with you in you from the day of your coming to me to this day nevertheless the lords do not approve of you so this is interesting akish says the phrase as the lord lives perhaps akish has become more familiar with david's god and he's even picked up some of the phrases that the israelites use In other moments in scripture, it seems that those who have no faith or have lost it can politely use the phrase, as the Lord your God lives. It happens in 1 Kings 17, when there's a a hungry widow that says, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And so perhaps Achish has begun to have some faith in Yahweh. As a result of David's influence, he admits the existence of the Lord. He yields to acknowledging God, but perhaps hasn't yet submitted to the Lord's authority. It's interesting that there can be this moment, similar to C.S. Lewis being the most reluctant convert, in which he has already intellectually concluded that Christianity is true prior to receiving salvation. He's like, all right, God is real. Jesus is God. Jesus is the savior of the world. Do I want to yield to him as my king? Right? He's 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 decided, he's concluded the truth of those claims, but he's like, I don't know if I'm ready for that. Akish uses the phrase, to me, it seems right that you should march out. And, and in with me in the campaign. Pay attention to this, that in the world, there is subjective morality. They have their own definitions of good and evil. They do what seems right to them. And what seems right to them will not always be right with God. And so this is where the tension builds, right? Where they have a different morality than we do, and they might even be offended at the things that God says is good or evil. And we feel tense, right? But notice what happens in this moment. The Lord brought David to this point of testing in his heart and in his loyalty, but doesn't require of him yet to prove it. Akish in verse seven says, so go back now and go peaceably that you may not displease the Lords of the Philistines. David, David is in the clear. This is amazing. Like the Lord has provided a way of escape from temptation. But in this moment, David also can't just be like, oh my goodness, Akish. I'm telling you I was worried because I didn't know what I was going to do when I got into that battle. Right? Like he's still standing before the Philistine king in the presence of thousands of their army. And so David said to Achish in verse 8, Why can't Why can't I, right? But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the armies of my lord the king? He's like, I surely wanted to do that. And so he continues to present himself as a servant to Achish. And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to the battle. I wonder if this is starting to make David feel guilty. Because Akish has said to him already by this point, as the Lord lives, you have been honest. And now he says, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. I think it is clear from earlier passages that David has not been fully honest with Akish. It's possible Akish is even trying to tease out David's motives to see through the apparent eagerness to remain in battle. And the commanders had given him an ultimatum. They didn't want to risk David being there and they wouldn't go to war with David. And so Akish has allowed David to go away. He says, now then, verse 10, rise in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. And so here Akish admits that David and his men serve the Lord but he doesn't he says the servants of your Lord not the Lord indicating that God Yahweh is the definitive Lord of Lords and King of Kings and so David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. So David and his men walk away from this battle, not knowing what the Lord's will is, who will win. But he returns. In his heart, his motives were fully tested. But he didn't have to make the choice. It's interesting that God provided a way out of temptation. What would have happened? If David yielded and had lifted his sword to fight against his kinsmen, would they ever have received him as king? He was among the enemy and about to be compelled to fight alongside them. It was a tricky moment indeed. He could have brought God's wrath upon himself. And he would have brought the judgment of his kinsmen for sure. And so it's interesting that David was loyal to God. David was loyal to God's people. David considered them gods and he considered them brothers. And I want to suggest to you, you have the same type of family. The church of God is family. It's family. We are also throughout the scripture referred to as the brothers, the family of God. And we treat each other as family. In Acts 6.3, we are meant to, as a church, serve one another. When it came to the distribution of food, to serve tables, Acts 6.3, it says, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. There's the use of the word brothers, and the intention that brothers in the family of God should serve one another the family of God the church the brothers are to suffer with one another even sending funds to distant churches made up of people you've never met in Acts 11 there's a prophecy given that there would be a great famine over all the world and this took place in the days of Claudius and verse 29 upon hearing this prophecy The disciples determined, everyone, according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. I want to point out that the family of God is broader than just our building, our valley, our country. And the church shows care for itself, just as Jesus loves his church and cares for her. They wanted to share in the suffering, the share in the burden of the church. Caring for people, brothers from far away. That the family of God suffers with one another. The family of God also rejoices with one another. Acts 15.3 And so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers, brothers and sisters rejoice with one another churches in each region celebrated the news of the family of God getting bigger. Churches in Jewish and Samaritan cities celebrated that Gentiles were experiencing salvation. And so as a church family, we should rejoice when people come to the faith from all over the world. We should celebrate when other ministries or churches flourish, when outreaches succeed, when they haul in a huge catch of fish and call to their friends for help. We should participate. We are a family of God. Jesus didn't just die for many individuals. He came to save many brothers. Romans chapter eight describes it this way. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Jesus didn't die to save many individuals. He died to save many brothers. We are not only adopted by the Father to whom we cry, Abba, but he adopts us into a family and since we are a family we ought not quarrel we ought not go to war with one another David didn't go to war with his own people He even worked hard to maintain unity with Saul, who had repeatedly sinned against him. And we cannot despise brothers, the Bible says. Romans 14, why do you pass judgment on your brother on matters of conscience? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. In verse 13, he says, Therefore, lo- let us not pass judgments on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. You are a part of the family of God. If you've chosen to follow and receive Jesus as your Lord and savior. And now there's this expectation, just as David could not go to war against Israel, his brothers, we cannot despise our brothers. We cannot cause hindrance to our brothers. We need to care for each other. In first Corinthians one verse 10. It says we are to avoid divisions. Paul says, I appeal to you brothers in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree. And that there be no divisions among you, that you may be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Right? And he's asking this question, like, why are you quarreling, my brothers? Right? We are all brothers, we all have the same Lord, and you're fighting what's interesting was the fighting that was taking place was all in regards to which preachers in which ministries they liked. Paul says this shouldn't happen. Paul in 1 Corinthians six, he says that there will be times when we as brothers will grieve one another. Verse one, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? There's gonna be times when as family of God, we get offended with each other. And so verse four, skipping down, it says, so if you have such cases, why do you lay them on those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame, right? Shame on you for having a grievance against a brother and having the world resolve it. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle the dispute between brothers? But brother goes to law against brothers and that before unbelievers to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Our treatment to other, other believers in the church should be of love and unity. And when we are irritated or offended or have even been sinned against, we must seek to resolve that situation graciously. David would have despised going to war against his brothers and we, the church must be shocked at the idea, shamed at the idea of going to war against each other. Remember, Jesus was willing to suffer financial loss for the sake of remaining friendly, right? You should rather suffer wrong, suffer loss, in order to maintain friendship with brothers. In 1 Corinthians 11, we're told that during communion, when we come together for the Lord's Supper, that we should wait for one another. Brothers care about community more than meeting their own needs. They wait to eat together at these these Lord's suppers, these family meals, these times of communion. They don't go on ahead and try to gorge themselves and meet their own needs. They realize that communion and community is important when it comes to worship times together and using the gifts of God. First Corinthians 14, 26. What then brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. That whole chapter is this idea about not pushing our own gifts, trying to get our own way but making space for others gifts to be celebrated using our gifts when we do to build up the family of God. Now what's interesting about this idea of brothers is that while we with the rest of humanity are made in the image of God and we love them as neighbors and we desire to see them come to know and follow Jesus brothers care about the truth and expose False brothers, Galatians 2.4, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery to them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Brothers care about defending right doctrine, guarding from legalism and licentiousness, preserving truth, and not just for ourselves, but for you, for others. We use our biblical knowledge to expose lies and false apostles so that younger brothers and sisters can grow safely in freedom and in truth, not enslaved to human tradition. In Galatians 6, we are to love our neighbors, our brothers, by restoring those caught in sin. 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We love our brothers when we restore them who are caught in sin. And let's end with Galatians 5. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one Another, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. David did not go to war with his own people. He worked hard. To maintain unity even with Saul, who had sinned repeatedly against him. And we in our family of brothers and sisters in Christ, both near and far, people from every tribe and tongue and nation, were called to freedom, were called to love, and we ought not bite each other, we ought not quarrel with each other. For we are brothers, we are family.